0: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. December 7th, 2023, the Should Liz Cheney Run Edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in New York City. Not just in New York City, I'm in John Dickerson's dining room. Is this a dining room, John?
1: It's a dining room, but I think most people would experience it as a kind of pass-through location between, say, the kitchen, the stairway, and the living room. But there is a dining room table that we're sitting at, and so I declare that it is a dining room.
0: And I'm also with Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Emily.
2: Hey, David. Hey, John. It is so nice to be here.
0: This week on The GabFest, Liz Cheney is back with a best-selling book. Should the former Republican congressional leader, or a former Republican congressional leader, she wasn't the leader, run in order to stop another Trump presidency? Then what about Chris Christie? Should he stop running in order to help stop another Trump presidency? And then will the Supreme Court overturn the immensely controversial Purdue Pharma bankruptcy. And there is the Dickerson doorbell ringing. (laughs) There's verisimilitude for you. Plus, in addition to doorbells, we will have cocktail chatter. I think by the time we're done taping this with all the technical problems we're having, we will definitely be having a cocktail, even though it is only nine in the morning. Kevin McCarthy is leaving Congress. He's joining Liz Cheney in the community of ex-Republican members of Congress. Uh, He will write a book, the former House Speaker. No one will care. He will not be greeted rapturously by anyone when he writes his book. But Liz Cheney has been greeted rapturously by the left for her best-selling memoir, Oath and Honor. It's reintroduced her to the American liberals, American Democrats, as a true hero. Uh, We are literally the only podcast in America that Liz Cheney is not on this week. John, what... Uh, of what she's saying seems likely to register with Republicans rather than the heroicizing liberals.
1: I don't think there there are going to be a lot of Republicans for whom it does not register. And I'm not sure that that is her intent. I think the group she's trying to wake up would be, I I guess, you know, suburban women who voted against Trump in 2020, her argument would be, "Don't go back." And and to the extent that there is a small group of old fashioned Republicans in battleground states, she would be speaking to them. I think she's probably speaking also to people who maybe don't know what the stakes are in the election and would, and that and might not vote. And I think her most compelling argument um, is a twofold. One, this is not about the past. Donald Trump is getting worse in terms of threats to democracy. So it's not just what he has shown he has done, but it's what he is promising to do, and that the promises he's making are completely consistent with his behavior and instincts of the past, not just when he was in office, but his whole behavior in life, Um, which is essentially to put himself above any kind of other uh, institution or um, set of demands he will always put himself first. And so uh, the second thing I think um, is that she's trying to explain and does a pretty good job in her book. And I thought did in the interview as well, the way in which the party is, is capitulating to Trump and the way in which some people like Mike Johnson, who she spends a lot of time on the current speaker act as a kind of laundry service for Trump's more outrageous claims. They put a shiny face on it. And therefore the threat is that, um, America, as she said, is sleepwalking to uh, a dictatorship and it requires the the collaboration. She called Mike Johnson a collaborator, the collaboration of this of the current Republican Party to help that sleepwalking take place by pretending that Trump is really not so bad.
0: Did she write the book before Johnson became speaker and she already had all these pejorative things to say about him?
1: It's a great question. When she wrote the book, she thought, why am I, you know, people are going to wonder why I'm spending all these pages on this obscure Louisiana congressman, like they're going to get kind of bored. And her point was the reason I wanted to spend so much time on him, he was not yet speaker and he wasn't speaker when the book closed. And as everyone here knows who's written books, the books close a lot earlier than they come out into the public. Her point was that what he had done was operate in this kind of this sleight of hand fashion, which is he lied by her account to his fellow Republicans and said the amicus brief that he was asking them to sign on to um, to challenge the results of the election was merely affirming Trump's right to uh, go through the legal process to, um, to 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 challenge an election, which but you know, nobody says was bad for him to do. She said, in fact, what Johnson was doing was relying on the fact his his colleagues wouldn't read what he was doing, but that he was asserting powers Congress didn't have to overturn the vote. Asserting things that were not true and that he knew not to be true. And how did he know that? Because courts had already shown that that evidence had no merit and that all of those acts that he did, according to her, show that kind of sleight of hand and that that is emblematic of what is happening in real time today that's allowing this sleepwalking to dictatorship.
2: And Liz Cheney has some new details, right? So she talks about how in the beginning of January, she calls into a conference call for Trump supporters. She hears about this fake elector scheme. She gets worried. She calls McConnell and says, what's going to happen if Pence decides not to count these electoral votes? And he tells her to call his chief of staff or the Senate parliamentarian Now, we know at this point that it all turned out okay, but that in part seems to be because Mike Pence's son told him that it was his duty to show up and count these votes. And it's just another piece of evidence about how close a call the democracy had.
0: There's been this question about the Republican Party in recent years. And one theory is everyone knows that Trump is wicked and damaging and villainous, and we're just tolerating it because Uh, we have to, our voters need it, but really we're going to prevent anything terrible from happening. And we're just going along with it because we're getting the tax cuts and the right justices. And the other theory is actually no, a whole lot of the party include of the elected representative of the party actually believe all this stuff and are going along with it and are, and they're not going along with it, you know, reluctantly they're going along with it because they are, uh, subscribed to it. From what I'm, hearing about Cheney, I mean, she seems to think actually too much of the – it's not that the party is – is are they unwittingly doing this. It's kind of that they're wittingly, that they want to be part of this, that they believe in the cause.
1: Yes, that it is a feature, not a bug. Um, And, and I think she would have put herself in that first camp that you described, which is, eh, I don't like him, but I believe in basically the same things he does, and I want all this other stuff to be done. Um, that was sort of the view going into 2016. Her argument now, of course, is that there will be no breaks, and that in fact they are they are building an administration that crea- that has no breaks on Donald Trump. But to your second point, I think that 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 um, there are some people who, in her view, I think you would maybe think there are three camps. There were people who are uh, who shared the view she had about Trump in 2016. Um, still hold it now don't want to say it out loud because they're um, cowardly but they're leaving congress because they they don't in it's too crazy the second group is people who actually um, you know wouldn't mind a little uh, insurrection now and now and then and so they're fine with trump at his worst um, because both they'll get whatever policy preferences they have but also like you know, we think the other side is so evil that we want somebody on our side who's rough and tough, and so these niceties of democratic norms are um, just that, niceties, and why should we hamstring ourselves by holding ourselves to them when we're fighting against the devils? Um, and then I think there is a, a third group that is kind of still in in the kind of place that Cheney was in 2016, which is, um, oh it's not so bad. And I still want to do the things I want to do. And I can only do those if there's a Democrat, if there's a Republican president. So it won't be as bad as everybody's saying, I get to do the stuff I want to do. That'll be helped by a Republican president who's not going to care. And therefore I might even have a chance of getting some of my stuff done or bills signed or so forth. So, you know, it's just the press kind of going overboard. I think those are the three, the three groups, but I think with all the retirements They will be replaced, Republicans will be replaced with more MAGA-like representatives and Republicans, which will make them more kind of pliable to Trump's aims if he's uh, reelected.
2: I feel like when we look back on this moment when Trump was not in office while he's running as the Republican nominee, which seems so likely— We're going to think about all this rhetoric, like I'm going to be the dictator on day one that he's saying to Sean Hannity, even though Hannity is trying desperately to bail him out of saying this, you know, on television, we're going to look back and think that these warning signs were here. But because it was just speech, we didn't take it seriously enough. And that there's something about the way that Trump blusters and constantly um, ups the ante on what he's saying that makes the kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink, trolling seem plausible. You get kind of numb to it over time.
0: I don't feel like people aren't taking it seriously. I think there's an enormous amount of people taking it seriously who are worried about Trump. But it's kind of like, what can we do about it? It's the... You're I'm looking at you, Emily. I assume you're deeply anxious about what Trump could do if he were president, but sitting here in December of twenty twenty three, what is your capacity to do anything? And so I'm not sure that it's numb, it's more like it's despairing and fatalistic and 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 despairing and fatalistic. And it's it's, it's, there's what activity is there to enact except to condemn again? Two things. One,
1: that numb point is exactly the one Liz Cheney made, which was, that's the sleepwalking. That's where the sleepwalking comes in. Everybody's numb, and it's like, well, you've been saying Trump's you know awful for a while, so aren't you just saying what you've been saying before? And her argument is, no, actually, we're at a new place. We are at 11. Um, but I, I would also just grab onto that day one comment. I think that's bait. So what Trump does is he says, I'm going to be dictator on day one, he said, you know, I'm going to go be tough on the border. So then everybody grabs that and says, he says he's going to be dictator on day one. And he says, what? All I said was I'm going to go be tough at the border. These guys are calling me a dictator for cracking down on on illegals. And the people who are like, yeah, I don't think there should be illegals in this country either. You know, he's not so bad. That's bait. He wants everybody to grab dictator day one. And the number of people who know better and have grabbed it is out of control. I don't mean you. I mean people who are in the, political world who know precisely what he's doing. The reason that people should be worried about him being a dictator is all of the things he has done, all of the things the people who've worked for him have testified to him wanting to do using the military... And all of the promises, using the military to go after those, uh, you know, using the military to overthrow the election, um, using the military to um, uh, attack protesters, then all the things he's promised to, you, to do, using the Department of Justice to go after his opponents, um, and all of the things he's shown himself to do, which is always to act in his own self-interest instead of in the obligations of his office. That's all the real stuff that's out there. And that goes to your point, David. What do we do about those real things? I think people... Um, talk about what the actual result of his policies would be on the things they care about, which isn't even necessarily all this stuff about the dictatorship stuff. It's basically like when he says he's going to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, that'll have real effects, like lots and lots of real things. That's probably the best route to the people who think, what is this election for?
2: Right. I mean, inflation, the kind of bread and butter issues that actually affect people's lives and feel less abstract to them than these threats to democracy. I mean, that all makes sense. And I guess it just goes back to your question, David, which is like, what is there that Liz Cheney or someone else can say that can wake up the Republican primary electorate? Because they're the ones who actually have the power to stop Donald Trump right now.
0: I'm not sure that the Republican primary electorate has any interest in stopping Donald Trump, or that actually is where you need to stop them. It's probably more the general election electorate. What can you do about that? And actually, that goes to the other big question about liz cheney liz cheney is has been extraordinarily brave about the most important issue of our time you know she's probably won the profiles and courage award 12 times she's a hero she's an american hero because it's very hard to do what she's done should she run for president in a in a kamikaze mission somehow as a third party candidate to take down donald trump or is that a bad idea emily
2: I mean, I just think it's not clear who she would really pull votes from. She could be kind of she could still get attention for her message that way. I sort of like this book vehicle better for that right now, because it just doesn't seem at all clear that she would pull more votes from Trump than from Biden. So if her goal is to stop Trump, then it seems like it could be self-defeating or at least just questionable. Um I mean, another thing, though, about the Republican primary that is important, and this was in an essay that Robert Kagan wrote for The Washington Post this week, is this idea that once Trump is the nominee, the ability of the legal system to contain him is likely reduced. I mean, it, the idea that a judge, you know, Trump is continuing to bait the judges who are trying him, right? They're trying to impose some limit on the criticisms he's uttering about members of their staff, you know, fears about safety. But there's also real trickiness we've talked about before that he needs to be able to speak out and criticize political opponents and defend himself and so as he goes up to the line or crosses it if he's actually the nominee what are those judges really going to do and then if he seems like he you know cannot be held within the bounds of the legal system that makes him seem more powerful so there's this way in which the nomination itself is going to increase his ability i think to um to just be able to transgress all these norms and that is going to portray a kind of sense of the weak system of government which then means that you know okay maybe you need a more authoritarian figure to come in and take it over.
0: John, do you think Cheney is thinking seriously about a run and and how do you weigh the things that Emily's just talked about the this question of who she would draw her votes primarily from?
1: I asked her about this and her answer was so not newsy that we didn't even include it also because in the in the various chain of things that she was saying. She said enough about the other stuff that was um, too good. But so I don't, I guess the only reason I'm saying all of that is I don't have a direct, uh, real understanding of what her interests and desires are. I think she's playing with that idea to see what it kicks up. I think it also gains, it adds more focus on her message. I mean, she's been, as you mentioned, on every possible media outlet. And one of the ways that she's kept interest going in the message she's sending is by suggesting she might run. I think that you don't – you never know how the ball bounces with these third-party candidacies. And you'd have to be awful certain that you're going to take the votes away from Trump in the right places to do that. Because it could backfire and go wrong, and then you can't – and it's hard to undo it, and then it's a mess. And then you've undermined yourself as a clear voice – setting the stakes, because now you're just like a confused person who's come into the race, out of the race, like whatever. So I think she says her main serious eye on the prize focus is um, keeping people from being numb about the threat to Donald Trump and the enablers, which she now includes basically the entire Republican Party, Um, because one of the things she said is Republicans can't be in the majority um, come 2025. Because even if Donald Trump loses as he did last time, they will and have become even more expert at these sleight of hand maneuvers to basically undo the election. So she's talking about not only defeating Donald Trump, but having a Democratic majority in Which the House. Which is
2: crazy given the position that she used to have in the Republican House.
1: Yeah, she was the number three leader uh, of the Republicans.
0: I want to give a big thank you to our Slate Plus listeners because of listeners like you. We've been able to keep doing the GabFest for so many years from John's. Dining room and also from other places, which are easier to tape in. Uh, Slate Plus members, you get lots of stuff for the, your subscription, you get bonus segments, you get special discounts on live shows like the one we are doing tonight uh here in New York. You get no hitting the paywall on the Slate site. And this week we have a Slate Plus segment where we're gonna talk about a conundrum that we decided was too good for the live show. If we could go back in time and ask one question of any of the authors of the U.S. Constitution. Anything we want, anything we wanted, what would we ask them? Um, that's a conundrum from trisha And we're going to talk about that on our Slate Plus segment. So if you're not a member, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. If you are a member, thank you. That's slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? By visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. John, said, Liz Cheney possibly contemplating starting a presidential run to deter Trump or stop Trump. Chris Christie is being urged to end a presidential run in order to stop Trump. Who is telling Christie to to end his shoestring low single digit uh, polling campaign and why
1: Republican donors to Haley, um, but also the kind of um, old fashioned Republican Party kind of money um, sending that signal. He's also hearing it from pundits um, who are saying there needs to be a single uh, anti-Trump candidate. Um, Christie doesn't seem to be listening to that particularly now that the fourth debate has taken place and there may not be a fifth one. He might've kind of had his biggest moment on stage, um, to make his case. On the other hand, he's put all his chips on New Hampshire. So it seems unlikely that he's going to drop out before New Hampshire. He says he's going to basically stay until super Tuesday, but having, having in the fourth debate said a lot of what he wanted to say, um, you know, There may be diminishing returns to staying in, especially if he can get one more chance to really send a big message by uh, endorsing Haley. But I I go down that road without any sense that that's what he's going to do. It seems like he wants to um, stay in this fight, keep talking about Donald Trump and in some ways burying, if that's possible, his support for Trump. Um, which uh, was uh, pretty strong, even when a lot of the things he now calls out were in clear, obvious display for all to see.
2: I was glad he was on the debate stage on Wednesday night. I got sucked by this show into watching much of that debate, which had its really appalling moments, mostly from Vivek Ramaswamy. But I thought it was important that Christie was there because the other three on the stage, Haley DeSantis, Ramaswamy, are so reluctant to really criticize Trump. And Christie is making this case and he's making it in the face of loud boos from the audience. And he's calling out the other three for being weaselly.
3: The fifth guy who doesn't have the guts to show up and stand here, He's the one who, as you just put it, is way ahead in the polls. And yet I've got these three guys who are all seemingly to compete um, with, you know, Voldemort. He or shall not be named. They don't want to talk about it. (laughs) The, The fact is that when you go and you say the truth about somebody who is a dictator, a bully, who has taken shots at everybody, whether they've given him great service or not over time, who dares to disagree with him then I understand why the Thieves Three are timid to say anything about it.
2: So in that setting, it seemed important that he was there.
3: What's
1: also weaselly, it seems to me, is that, is that Haley and DeSantis will attack Trump on policy grounds. So DeSantis will attack him on, on COVID or the Affordable Care Act and his inability to get rid of it. And Haley will talk about the deficits that were ballooned under, under Trump. But then when it comes to Trump's promises to um, basically enact authoritarian policies, they won't touch it. How do you extrapolate from that? It's it's not because those policies that Trump is promising are objectionable. It's because the voters that they want to grab, those kind of Trump voters, like that stuff. And that's, I don't know, it's hard to put one's head around.
0: So we've seen a bunch of non-Trump candidates drop out. Pence, Tim Scott, Doug Burgum dropped out this week. Did it make a sound when a Doug Burgum falls in the forest? Does it make a noise? I don't know. It's not clear that any of this has at all advanced the other Trump rivals significantly. Them leaving. So is it is it even the case that if Christie dropped out, suddenly Nikki Haley has a you know clear clear skies and a brisk wind at her back?
1: Watching the debate on Wednesday, it felt like you know, there's a, uh, and, and connected to this question, it felt like it's a competition for who's going to win the sprint in the parking lot. And the main event is outside of the stadium and the main events taking place in the stadium, which is to say that, yeah, let's say Nikki Haley is the one anti-Trump candidate. She can be president of the anti-Trump fan club, which is not the Republican primary or Republican party. And so, um, It's the only path, if there is ever going to be anything, uh, it's the only path. But the idea that other shoes were going to drop that would diminish Trump has been disproved. In fact, the energy has worked in the opposite direction. Um, And so um, it seems highly unlikely that even if there was a last man or woman standing, that it would change the shape of the race.
2: I mean, isn't there an incentives problem here? There's what you would do if you were willing to just have this one goal be to stop Trump and become the nominee. And then maybe Haley would sound more like Chris Christie, but it's unlikely.
1: The puzzle there is that sounding like Chris Christie is not the way to go because the more you attack Donald Trump, the more Republican primary supporters go, I like Donald Trump, even if they believe in everything you're saying. It's just there's like, how do you win the game when that's the rule?
2: Okay, so maybe what I'm saying doesn't make any sense. But what I was going to continue with is that if it's unlikely that you're going to win the election, then you really have like negative incentive to play this role because you have to think about your future political career, which will surely be damaged by being the person who ripped into Donald Trump because he will make damn sure of that.
1: And it's your future career walking down the street. I mean, it's not just whether you want to be in politics or not. Think of what has happened to the people who have spoken out against Donald Trump or where Donald Trump has put the finger on them. I mean, when Trump uh, was uh, mentioning uh, the court clerk of the judge in the New York civil case, that person and the judge got such violent and vicious voicemails that the sheriff of the court or the marshal of court or whatever did a transcript of them. There were 253 single space pages of attacks on those people. That's what one's life is if one says the wrong thing about Donald Trump.
0: This is my fantasia. It's not that Liz Cheney runs a third-party candidacy for president, uh, because I don't. I think because the, this anti-Trump space is so narrow. I wonder, and this is probably technically impossible, but Nikki Haley runs a good campaign for president as a Republican, loses in the primaries. Nikki Haley, somebody who is actually respected by a significant chunk of actual Republican voters, then runs a kamikaze third-party candidacy for president. Like, could that actually work? But then
2: doesn't Nikki Haley, whoever plays that role, just turns into Liz Cheney?
0: I suppose so. Yes. Let me ask this question a different way, John. It's not even the same question. Let me ask a totally, (laughs) totally different question a different way. Uh, My question is, what kind of number would Haley, or I suppose DeSantis, need in a New Hampshire primary and Iowa caucus to be seen as an actual potential alternative to Trump? He's at 60 in the polling, more or less, with the party. If she could consolidate 40%, would that create a real race?
1: This is a fantastic question, because in New Hampshire in particular, there has been a history of people who come in second, who are the story. I covered Lamar Alexander in 1996 in the Iowa caucuses. He came in third and he was the story all because of expectations. So um, I don't know what the number is. I would say it would have to be, I mean, obviously if Haley comes close or the, let's say the non-Trump, a non-Trump alternative comes within 10 points. Certainly it's a, it's a race. Now, of course you have to have everybody else drop out for that to even be possible. But I think in the teens of a gap between where Trump is, I think first of all, Trump's way under 50%. Um, and the the next closest person is in the teens, low teens, um, in terms of the gap, Trump is still ahead, but the person who comes in second, um, is, is behind by only the low teens points, I think you could have uh, a, a moment. But the question is, what is the kind of moment that happens? When this is, you know, Clinton came in second when he was the comeback kid in New Hampshire and went on to win. So uh, when Muskie um, had his tearful moment in uh, New Hampshire and was his candidacy essentially collapsed uh it was because um he he still won. Muskie won the New Hampshire primary, but he didn't win by enough, and that was seen as a huge blow against his campaign. So expectations can play this big role, but we are in an inelastic Republican primary moment. Um the only way in which is to say that events don't operate the way they have in, the, in past campaigns. The only way I could imagine this working is somebody comes within this margin I've been talking about, and it becomes a conversation within the echo chamber of the primary voters that wow, the voters, not the pundits, not Christie, not Mitt Romney, not Liz Cheney, the voters. You know, they're a little worried about Donald Trump. Love him, think he's great. Boy, he's good on the border, but. I don't know, maybe it's time for a new thing and on and on. So it ha- but it has to look clean and that the voters delivered this verdict to to possibly break this inelasticity.
0: It's not, in your view, enough for Trump to just come in around fifty. It's Trump has to come in around fifty and there has to be one person who has gathered up most of the alternative. And which to me is seems even more unlikely because it doesn't feel like DeSantis is gonna drop and ramaswamy is not going to drop and so well the ramaswamy being in there probably helps haley and desantis
1: ramaswamy is dropping by virtue of his behavior i mean these these debates haven't changed the overall shape of the race but i mean haley has definitely gone up as a result of her performance in the debates and ramaswamy has gone down which for her people who believe in a kind of um fairness in uh political discourse and you know that has given them some small um which comfort which is funny because gravity in that sense is working right the person who is obnoxious and who is um obviously duplicitous and misleading on the debate stage gets penalized for it right and the person who has strength and shows confidence and has answers and you know does well like so it's in this Little terrarium of the of the debates, the rules of politics are operating, which is just kind of a a a side note. But um, I think what has to happen for this scenario to work is there has to be that alternative person, and this goes back to the previous point about whether that alternative person needs to be particularly tough on Trump. I think not. And this is way the way in which Haley and DeSantis, with their muted criticism of Trump, are playing the smart long game to the extent it's even possible. This game might not exist, but for voters to go, boy. I don't know, there's something with home, but boy, I really like Haley DeSantis or whatever, that person needs not to um, be so anti-Trump that it makes them feel bad about their continued Trump affection.
0: Let us now turn to an enthralling Supreme Court case. Uh, Enthralling because the stakes are huge for real human beings, enthralling because it is genuinely intellectually interesting, and enthralling because it does not appear to split neatly on ideological grounds the way everything else in life does these days the case involves a proposed settlement an enormous proposed settlement in the bankruptcy of purdue pharmaceuticals which was the company built by the sackler family that made and sold oxycontin knowingly ignored the risks of oxycontin and the and the the way in which it was addicting and ruining the lives of its the people taking it um, raked in billions as oxy ruined lives. And then as the company was falling apart, the family swept $11 billion out of the company into offshore havens. So after years of negotiations and massive lawsuits involving all kinds of plaintiffs, all kinds of plaintiffs, including harmed individuals, uh, sovereign native tribes, states, there was an agreement reached 97% of the plaintiffs signed on to where they would get billions, at least $7 billion dollars, spread out over many years for many different purposes, 6 billion of which would come from the Sackler family. And here's the key part. The Sackler family would be free from all future civil liability. So now the U.S. government primarily has sued to stop the settlement, saying it's unfair to the victims who didn't support the deal, the 3% of the, the plaintiffs who didn't support the deal, they've lost their right to sue the Sacklers. So, Emily, this is just Really, really fascinating. Um, expand on the issues. I just, you know, put the put the put the uh, the foundation around.
2: Sort of a moral and a legal set of questions, right? The Stacklers took eleven billion dollars from Purdue. They moved a lot of it to offshore accounts where it's not touchable. They have not had to declare a bankruptcy. And so, what's happening here is that you have this complicated case with. All these different plaintiffs, some of them are governments and attorneys general, some of them are people who took opioids um, or their family members, and there's this effort understandably to use the Purdue bankruptcy to roll up all of these claims and try to settle it and make sure that some of this money, this ill gotten gains gets to people and gets to um, you know these governmental entities that had to spend so much money dealing with the opioid crisis. So that's the set of incentives that's leading almost all the plaintiffs to want to accept the settlement. On the other hand, it leaves the Sacklers with a lot of money and no criminal liability for sure. I mean, that's not even on the table because we're in bankruptcy court. And I mean, I was struck by this that, I mean, when you look at the settlement in terms of individual plaintiffs, there are 138,000 of them and they're going to get between $3,500 and $48,000, which is just not a lot of money relative to the terrible pain and suffering that these drugs caused. And so when you think of the billions of dollars the Sacklers, Still have it seems kind of staggering. And the US trustee program, which is in the Justice Department, is saying, look, we're a watchdog here. And in bankruptcy law, there we've there is now this custom, and it comes from asbestos litigation, um, that in order to settle a super complicated, you know, multi-party litigation like this that we're going to allow this release of someone who doesn't have to file for bankruptcy himself or herself who is a kind of third party who's contributing to the settlement but is going to get this immunity we're going to allow that because this is all complicated and we're going to just try to wrap it up the question that some of so some of the justices at oral argument this week were very sympathetic to that point of view they were saying like basically Okay, let's make sure people get some money. Justice Kagan, for example. But other justices, including Justice Jackson, Justice Gorsuch, were saying wait a minute, does the bankruptcy code really authorize these third party releases? Not clear, depends how you read this kind of catch all phrase. And also, if we say no to this, won't that change the next round of settlement negotiations? Because if we take this off the table, won't that force the Sacklers to up their offer? That's a kind of underlying dynamic here of whether if you say you can't have this kind of release, will that make the Sacklers actually have to pay more? Which I'm not sure whether that's true or not, but it's really interesting to think about the gamesmanship there.
0: There's these these questions of justice because obviously – it is profoundly unfair that the sacklers who have caused so much human misery who enjoy their ill-gotten gains escape without financial liability and and you feel that it is just for so many americans who to well, it feels just that for the Sacklers who've who've caused so much misery for so many Americans to have similarly have to endure this cycle of pain. Like they should have to endure what they have imposed on others. Um, but I do go to Kagan's point, which is the people who hate the Sacklers most are the ones who support this deal the most. They want the money sooner. They think it is a pretty good deal. It ends the litigation and the suffering of litigation they have to go through and that the alternative, which is that you do have to go back and renegotiate it, or you have a race to the courthouse where everyone is trying to individually sue the Sacklers. And right now, the liability, if you added up all the individual cases, it would be $40 trillion. There isn't $40 trillion of Sackler money. So some people would get a lot of that money and and the later plaintiffs wouldn't get any of it. At least this agreement is, is relatively equitable. And, and, and so I, I find it difficult to get behind a solution which would intrinsically lead to a huge amount more litigation, even if it does extract $2 billion more from the Sacklers.
1: And when it extracts that $2 billion m- more, what's the distribution of that? In other words, how much more, if it's distributed across 138,000 plaintiffs, does it end up being at the end of the day after so much more work and also the opportunity maybe for it to be much less than $2 billion because the Sacklers have a lot of money and could fight this out at the courthouse perhaps forever or somehow get get away with it?
2: I mean, there's also a larger question, which is supposed to be part of the Supreme Court's focus. Did Congress authorize this kind of release from you know, release from further lawsuits. And when Congress passed the bankruptcy code, they put in this kind of catch-all phrase that said, basically, like, a bankruptcy court can also approve another provision that's appropriate. So it seems really broad. On the other hand, when you look at all the specifics in the statute, did they mean to cover something that's not like the other things? And we're in this moment with the Supreme Court right now where they're really into the idea based on what they call the major questions doctrine that if the if Congress didn't talk about something that would be a really big deal for courts to allow, then Congress didn't mean to cover it. it you can't have a major question in a statute that the statute doesn't explicitly address. It's part of textualism. It's supposed to be part of their whole theory. And some of them, particularly Justice Kavanaugh, seemed like happy to throw that out the window this week. Do we want bankruptcy courts creating this um, immunity clause for people who don't declare a bankruptcy without Congress really having maybe thought about it at all? Just because judges desperate to s- settle asbestos litigation came up with this tool.
0: Well, I what I liked about what Kavanaugh had said there was that he was he was appealing to the expertise of thirty years' experience. He was like, "This is something we've been doing for thirty years. The people who know best." have been doing this and they've decided this is a way to get past what is a Gordian knot of, of competing needs and demands and litigation. And one way to cut it is to create this form of, of clearance of liability. And so I liked I liked hearing a conservative justice say, well, the expertise of the government officials who looked at it says that this is a smart thing to do, which is different than what we've seen conservatives on the Supreme Court do differently. Emily, I actually want that, but what you talked about made me think about a case we've talked about before i think the texas two-step cases these are the cases where we've seen in bankruptcy and in asbestos and there was a coke industries one where companies will take the damaged part of the company the company the part of the company that makes the really shitty dangerous product spin it off put all the lawsuits in that company, and then have that company declare bankruptcy, meanwhile protecting the main part of the company. And I know that the, this was something that was being litigated last year, but do you know if that's been decided?
2: I'm not sure what the answer to that is, but it's you're right to bring it up because it's another way in which wealthy corporate defendants are going to find as best they can a way to shield a lot of their assets from the real damage of bankruptcy, right? Bankruptcy is such a funny concept. It carries this kind of stigma within. You imagine a company collapsing, going broke. You imagine people like having to move out of their house. No, you like get to keep your yacht a lot of the time. And I think there is just something so fundamentally galling about that, that it can be easy to lose sight of all the other equities you were just talking about, David, where it's like, you've been litigating this for years. You want some relief already. You're not convinced you're going to be able to get a better deal.
0: John, can I ask you a different question? To me, a lot of what's made me interested in the Purdue case is this question of whether the Sacklers have suffered enough and appropriately. And I think that underlying actually this fight really is the question of the Sacklers suffering. If the Sacklers had given up a you know ten point eight billion dollars rather than eleven billion dollars, but still had given up their civil liability, I don't think anyone would be complaining. Or t- ten point if they'd given up ten point nine nine billion dollars and kept 10 million dollars people would have been like okay and they wouldn't mind the legal issue they it's a question of their their level of suffering and i wonder if thinking about their the money they get to keep is the wrong way to think about it i think their name is their name is like the not quite like the hitler name but it's in that category in the united states the name is it's blood the name is pure blood now I think Sacklers and future generations will change their last name. I think we're going to have a lot of people, you know, happily marrying people and taking their spouse's last name. I think they're going to abandon the last name. They're not going to abandon the money. They're going to keep the money. But no one in this family, no one in the the generation living in this family will ever live with any peace of mind. They will know for the rest of their days that the money that they live on, the money that buys them fancy clothes comes from blood in a way that, nobody else's money in this country comes from blood and i feel like that's a it's it's not full punishment they still have the money they are still going to buy uh you know the the small yachts and the big yachts too but it's a significant psychic penalty that they will endure and is it enough
1: david they were just doing what the doctors told them there were so many people who were in pain that they provided the the mechanism to ease that pain. And there might have been a couple of moments where a memo might have been written and they didn't get, but there were there were so many people who were helped. And isn't it a lovely breeze looking out over this vast stretch of happy life that I have? I think that the psychological mechanisms that we all have, but that people who have a real strong interest because their future happiness rely on them, allow a personal architecture of where the, I'm not sure that they, uh, there are some who may, but I think there are a lot of, there's a lot of chance that uh, they don't feel the, sh- the shame and that you um, think. I think there is a great ch- possibility that they feel victimized and they feel misunderstood.
2: And they're not going to jail. I mean, you can look at these facts and some evidence about what they knew and think they should be criminally prosecuted. You know, also when you step back a second and think about deterrence, is this enough deterrence? Now, that's not the problem of the bankruptcy court. I'm not suggesting that necessarily it has a place directly in this case. But when we think about what we actually care about here, you want people like the Sacklers to think that you cannot cause this kind of damage and pain and suffering in so many people's lives and get away with it. And I don't think that's the message that we're sending.
0: Let's go to cocktail chatter. Um, we're sitting here in the morning. We just had bagels. Emily still has a coffee. John has a coffee. I somehow don't have a coffee in front of me. I'm going to pour a shot of, of of whiskey into Emily's coffee and she is going to now chatter.
2: Retired Justice uh, Sandra Day O'Connor died last week. And I've been reading an excellent biography of her called First by Evan Thomas. And There's an anecdote in here from 1970, which is the year that uh, Sandra Day O'Connor joined the Arizona State Senate, right? This is when she was a politician. It's just this anecdote just kills me. Okay. So there was a feature piece about her in Phoenix Magazine. Um, It called her a lively lissom creature who in January 1970 drew appreciative but subsonic wolf whistles from her new colleagues. Then there's a quote from one lawmaker. When you first meet Sandra, you think, what a pretty little thing. Next you think, my, it's got a personality too. I mean, okay, I was born the year after this. Like this is only 50 years ago. And men felt completely comfortable saying such things. And magazine articles quoted them as if this was all very amusing. And it just really makes me impressed with Sandra Day O'Connor that she ignored all of this and went on to become such a an powerful and influential figure.
0: Did you see in that in the Liz Cheney book that anecdote about... Uh, when when the Republican Caucus is calling her to account and criticizing her, somebody describing it as being you know you're playing the big game and your girlfriend is on the bleachers rooting for the other team. It's like they're describing. I mean, it wasn't definitely saying Liz Cheney is my girlfriend, but it was very evocative. It was that was the implication. So it's 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 changed, but not a hundred percent change.
2: Not a hundred percent,
0: John. I'm going to pour a shot of whiskey into your coffee mug there although i don't know where you keep the whiskey but if i knew where i would pour a shot of whiskey into it and now you can cocktail chatter
1: uh just there in the kitchen uh, really within walking distance um two things one is the uh we recorded this week a um catfest reads with um brad stolberg on his book master of change which is a, a really great uh book about the changes that uh Helped all of us in our lives and how to uh how to manage them um so if you want to read that before you listen to Gapfest reads i would uh suggest it it's it's also of the perfect length and also then in the course of doing work on that and some other stuff i went back and listened to one of my favorite um monty python sketches is the uh, monty python job interview sketch which is actually an interview for the management training course and this is where um jonathan Cl- john uh, cleese is um is the one doing the interview, and Eric Idle is the one applying for the job. And Eric Idle just gets every question answer wrong. It's just, he feels completely uh, taken over by this. Um, Anyway, it's one of my absolute favorites, go watch it. But I was watching that, and then that led me to a speech that John Cleese gave about creativity and management. Um, And the speech contains a bunch of light bulb jokes Uh, which are kind of go throughout the speech, don't actually quite work for John Cleese. And some of them contain old stereotypes that uh, will offend some modern ears. So you're going to have to get past those. But the speech itself about having an open versus a closed mindset and when that works and when it doesn't and what the conditions are for an open mindset and the reason openness and play are so important in life and creativity, it's a a well-argued, tidy speech. So if you're ever sitting with YouTube wondering about what to watch, I would uh, recommend that. When you're in your space-time oasis, getting into the open mode, nothing will stop you being creative so effectively as the fear of making a mistake. Now, if you think about play, you'll see why. True play is experiment. What happens if I do this? What would happen if we did that? What if the very essence of playfulness is an openness to anything that may happen a feeling that whatever happens it's okay so you cannot be playful if you're frightened that moving in some direction will be wrong something you shouldn't have done when you're either free to play or you're not
0: my chatters i have nothing to drink but I'm taking an imaginary shot of vodka. Um, Just a couple of books that I read that really enjoyable, which I took out from the library, incidentally, both from the library. One is called going zero. It's by Anthony McCartan, who's a screenwriter and he's a New Zealand screenwriter. And it's a, it's about trying to disappear and like what it, what it would take to disappear in a surveillance society. And it's, it's slightly future dystopic, um, slightly, slightly speculative fiction, but it's mostly set in our present day. And it is really stressful and really thrilling and very propulsive and very, very thoughtful about sort of how we are tracked all the time. Um but not in a not in a pedantic way, just in a really compelling way. And the other book, which I loved so much, and I can't believe I didn't read it when it came out, is Kylie Reed's book, Such a Fun Age, which Emily, I'm sure you re- you haven't read it. Oh my gosh. It is so it's a book about a young woman a young black woman who is a the babysitter for a white family in philadelphia and some things happen uh to them kylie reed has the most astonishing ear her her kind of sense of dialogue the way she has children talking she has a lot of children's speech in it it's so accurate to how children sound um And it's a, it's a book that is, that has no false notes. It feels everything that happens in it. You feel like this really happened. This is a world that is conjured so perfectly. These people are real and there's, there's nothing in it that ever feels like it isn't right and true. And she has a gift for being in people's heads and sounding how they sound. It's such a good book. So Kylie reads such a fun age, um, listeners, listeners listeners you continue to send us great chatters i wish every chatter could be read in the voice of that lovely irish woman who who recited the cat poem for us last week um so if there are any more irish people who have listener chatters and want to send them to us please do but um you don't have to be irish to send us a great chatter and and this week's chatter emailed to us at gabfest it's com, comes from ryan white
3: hello Gamfest. My name is Ryan White, a longtime listener, history nerd, and pastor from South Hill, Washington, out near Seattle. My, my chatter is an article in the BBC this week by Zaria Gorvet, titled Tyrian Purple, The Lost Ancient Pigment That Was More Valuable Than Gold. It tells of one man's quest to rediscover the shade and recipe for this ancient dye, whose color was once reserved exclusively for royalty, violators be executed. It all began when an observant consulting manager in Tunis, Tunisia, Mohamed Rasan Nora, was taking his regular lunch break walk along the beach and noticed an intensely reddish purple liquid oozing out of a cracked sea snail. This sparked a memory about Tyrian Purple and sent him headlong into a decades long passion project to recover what was once lost to history. It's a great read and I hope you enjoy it. Thanks.
0: That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced with great grace and and under trying circumstances today by Shana Roth, our researchers, Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond is Senior Director for Podcast Operations. And Alicia Montgomery is the VP of Audio for Slate. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. We are gathered in in John's house here on Thursday morning, and tonight we're going to be at uh, 92nd Street Y taping our live conundrum show. And we love doing the conundrum show. We look forward to it all year, in large part because you send us such great questions. And we thought just to whet our appetites, to get our our brains sharpened for the evening, we would take one of the conundrums we really liked and do it as our slate plus. So, So, Trisha... Has sent us a great conundrum, um, which we will not talk about tonight. We'll talk about now. Uh, If you could go back in time and ask one question of any of the authors of the U.S. Constitution, including the Bill of Rights, what would your question to them be, and why would you choose this question? Can I go first? Just because I think Emily will steal
1: is going to say the same thing. If a black person is elected president, will that be in fulfillment of the promise of this document or in contravention of it?
2: I like that. It is kind of a version of my question, which was a little more literal minded, which is when you wrote words like equal protection in the 14th Amendment and liberty and cruel and unusual punishment, did you mean that they had to be fixed in stone in the way that you thought about them either in 1787 or 1868? Or did you mean, oh, future generations can interpret them according to their changing values and mores?
1: There's so many questions that it would be fun to ask them. Uh, Also, you could ask: imagine a a specific gun question, obviously. Um, Imagine a weapon existed with this capability. Is that in keeping with your understanding of a well-regarded militia or whatever?
2: And right now, when you're writing this in 1787, you're super concerned about tyranny, right? You're trying to escape the British king do you think that that is always going to be the overwhelming problem in American governance? Or is this there a way in which the structure you created that is so prone to gridlock could turn into its own kind of problem? Like they didn't anyway. Yes. If you could tell them that, what would they say?
1: They were terrified about about two things, the tyrant and the the demagogue. And um, turns out one of Donald Trump's great skills is that he's touched on both of their principal fears in that summer of 1780.
0: That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com/gabfest+ to become a member today.
4: Hi